Hello, ABF Online. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. So good to be with you today. Before we get into God's Word, and I know that's the reason why you're here, just wanted to give a couple of brief announcements. The first thing is this. Man, we know you're joining us from lots of different places. Maybe you're traveling this weekend and are not going to be in Agora Hills, and so you're checking us out online. That's amazing. Maybe you live somewhere else around the country or world, and you are tuning in because you know that Pastor Scott brings the heat when he gets into God's Word. That's amazing. Our just hope and prayer, uh, as we know that it's so important for every believer to be connected to a local body, a local church. And so our prayer is, man, find and where is that spot where you're connecting with other believers in real life that can pour into your life uh, and be a part of the church. So that's our first thing in our heart for everyone. Couple of things that we'd like to point you to, regardless of where you're at, we'd love to pray for you this week. Amazing that our Lord bends down to listen to the requests that we bring before him. And so we'd love to pray for you. You can text any prayer request that you have to 97,000. Again, that's 97,000. Text us and we will pray for you almost immediately. We'd love to do that. There are a bunch of things going on here in Agora Hills. If you are local and interested in all the events, activities, ministries that are going on here at the church, check out the website, agorabible.org, or download the app, our church center app. Uh, Lots of things going on, and you can figure all that out there on the website. Lastly, our ongoing ministries here at ABF are only possible through generous financial support. And so we are so thankful for so many generous people that keep the ministries here at ABF going. And so if you are interested in uh, continuing to support ABF, you can do that online on the website as well under the Give tab. Thank you so much uh, for even prayerfully considering it. We are super, super grateful. Well, without further ado, shall we get into the Word of God? Hey, Extended Church family, thanks for joining us online. Thank you, Josh. Excited to be uh, here in our new series. We're working through a series called Meltdown, looking at different characters and trying to learn uh, lessons from that. Before we dive into this week's character, though, I wanted to bring up another character that you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, This will be kind of a test uh, on who the age of our audience is. There was a a character in the 80s. His name was Stuart Smalley. Uh, He was on Saturday Night Live and kind of this fictitious uh, self-help uh, expert and uh, self-proclaimed self-help expert. And uh, here's, a, here's a little uh, video clip, if you haven't seen him before, of him helping out Michael Jordan in his prime have a little more confidence. See what you think. Well, obviously, uh, Michael Jordan was not lacking confidence during, especially during that era uh, of his life. But uh, Stuart Smalley was known for uh, really trying to uh, pump people up and be reminded of the uh, in, their inner strength, their power from within. And it's kind of uh, a funny thing uh, to laugh about, but it's honestly a huge part, if you think about it, of our culture. We, we try to make sure that people understand that they have the strength to overcome obstacles. And even when we're dealing with our kids, we uh, try to instill the uh, idea that you can do this. If you work hard enough, if you're committed enough, you can overcome any obstacles. It's interesting because that line of thinking, in contrast with what God's word actually teaches, you got to wrestle through, is that actually a biblical principle? Is self 
confidence, is that actually something that we see in Scripture? I want to look at a couple passages that actually relate to the topic. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mark 17, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jeremiah 17.5 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Then Proverbs 28.26 tells us, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. So what do we see there in the text? Basically, we're reminded that we can't trust our mind. We can't trust our flesh. We can't trust our strength. And we can't even trust our heart. So what does this tell us about the mantra, just just follow your heart, just trust and believe in yourself? It really shoots that idea And really, it's not a new concept. It's something that mankind has struggled with all the way from the beginning. This idea of, I can do this on my own. Now, the character we're looking at this week, uh, you're obviously familiar with the name Peter, being one of Jesus' disciples. And he learned really a a hard lesson about self-confidence. He learned the hard way that, man, the only way to navigate this life in a God-honoring way is with full submission, complete dependence on the Lord. Let me pray before we begin looking at his story. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this chance to be together and spend some time in your word and just learning uh, from different characters in scripture. And there's things to gleam in a positive way. There's things to gleam from failings. God, we ask that you'd speak to us, uh, that you teach us through this text. God, we invite that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so really the story of Peter, what I've done is I've kind of broken down a couple different passages to speak to about his story, and really they're broken into what I would describe as four different scenes. The very first scene starts in Mark chapter 14, verse 26, if you want to look with me at that now. Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So what's going on here in the the order of things? You might remember after the Last Supper, uh, they moved the scene kind of transitions. In the Last Supper, you remember he told them that he'd be betrayed and he actually hands the bread to Judas, obviously uh, highlighting him whether they connected that or not as to be determined, but he's continuing that conversation, and we're told that they go to the Mount of Olives. 
It's interesting on my Israel trip just a couple of years ago, getting to spend some time on the Mount of Olives. Uh, here's a picture of me uh, sitting there. But what was interesting about it is, is just an eye shot of Jerusalem where uh, all of the events would unfold uh, very soon with Jesus' betrayal, uh, with Jesus' execution. Uh, and so that's where this is taking place. He's calling them and charging them, explaining what's going to happen. He says, you will all fall away. In other words, not, not just one of them, literally explaining every single one of them, when times get tough, they're going to collapse. He explains to them that this is something that has been prophesied. All the, all the way back in Zechariah 13, 7, it was explained that the, predicted that the shepherd's sheep would be scattered. And that's exactly what's about to take place. Imagine how difficult that would be as Jesus is knowing, he understands what's about to come, that his closest friends, the people, his confidants, the people he had spent so much time investing in, knowing that they're about to betray him, I think it'd be very difficult to remain friends with them and be interacting with them, knowing that that was right on the horizon. He's very specific about when it's going to take place. He explains that it's going to happen that very night. It's interesting, I was doing a little research on how night was broken down in the Jewish culture. They basically had the night segmented in four different parts. Evening would be from 6 to 9 p.m. Then the second section would be called midnight, and that was a time period between 9 and 12. And in that 9 to 12 time period would be typically when a rooster would make its very last crow of the day, basically the last loud uh, cry before kind of sleeping for the night. Then you had the next segment of 12 to 3 uh, would be this next segment in the night. And then the final segment would be from 3 to 6 a.m. And the 3 to 6 a.m. would be the next time that the rooster would crow. Usually a pretty consistent time. A lot of times in the, in the uh, east, in the Middle East, they would actually use a, a rooster as like a, an alarm clock to alert you that your day was beginning. And Jesus explains exactly that between the last crow of the day and the first crow of the next day, that Peter would deny him three times. But Peter, upon hearing that, explains this will never happen. It will never, ever happen. Even it goes as far as to say, even if I have to die, this is not going to take place. It's interesting interaction if you think about it, because what's happening is he's debating the God, the God man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who had a perfect track record of knowing everything, past, present, future. What would make somebody like Peter that had seen all the miracles, that had seen all that Jesus had done, what would make somebody like Peter debate Jesus on what was going to actually take place? I'll tell you what will make somebody debate Jesus is you see, the reality is every single one of us has a really deep-rooted self-sufficiency delusion, thinking that we are more capable on our own than we actually are, not realizing that our track record of faithfulness is really not that impressive. Realizing that we're prone to fall, we're prone to wander. Found it interesting, that's why in Matthew chapter 5, 
at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained something just right out of the gates. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you dig into that title or that description, poor in spirit, those are the, those are the folks who recognize their own spiritual poverty, their own propensity to wander, and their own just complete desperation and need for God. If you think about some of the things that we uh, discuss and some of the things that in church world that we even sing in songs, I was thinking about the song, Every Blessing. We just sang it a couple of weeks back. Uh, it's a hymn, very famous hymn has lyrics in that that have always stuck in my mind. It says this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. It's really, if, you're on, if we're honest with ourselves, it's easy to live in the delusion of self-sufficiency, self, uh, the idea that I can do this if I just pull myself up by my bootstraps if I just try a little bit harder. And it's something that's instilled to us from birth. And what I would suggest is it's an unhealthy foundation for our thinking. Self-confidence is gonna lead us to the exact situation that Peter finds himself in right now. That's why even Josh pointed out last week, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, we're told, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. And that's exactly what we see take place in scene two with Peter. Let's pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 66. It says this, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and, be, and began again to say by the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Really, this is a hard scene to watch if you think about it. It's one of Jesus's closest friends basically collapsing under pressure, out of, out of fear. But the question is, fear, fear of what? Fear of who? It couldn't be just this little servant girl. Why would, be in, why would he be uh, pressured by her or under any kind of a weight to deny Jesus to this servant girl? It's important to understand where this is taking place. And in fact, the other gospels maybe give us a little better clue of where this is at. In John chapter 18, we're given the account that Peter, after Jesus was arrested, follows closely behind to see what's taking place. 
so closely behind that he enters into the high priest's courtyard, or basically the, if you would, the kind of the uh, outside gates, just outside the gates of where the high priests live. But at that point, the high priest's name was Caiaphas. And you might notice in scripture that it mentions two high priests, Caiaphas and Annas, just to clear up a little confusion about what's taking place there is Annas was the high priest of that time, but Rome actually took away that title and allowed it to be passed on to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But even with that transition of title, everybody knew that Annas was still the one in control. He was the power broker. Caiaphas was just playing the role or figurehead because it was required by the Romans. So that's why Jesus was brought before Annas. So either way, they're related, they're relatives, and both of them had the power and ability to arrest Peter just like they had arrested Jesus. So Peter isn't just being silly and concerned about a little girl's opinion of him. He's actually realizing that his life's on the line. This, this is a big deal. If he gets exposed as being a follower of Jesus, he might be arrested and whatever the outcome Jesus is about to face, he may face it as well. And realizing this, we're told in this text, it plays out exactly as Jesus had predicted. Three times denying Jesus. The third time, even calling out curses. That's, we, we made mention of that a couple of weeks ago is that profanity Peter. So here he calls out curses. He collapses under pressure. But we, as we reflect on it, have to ask the question, would we do any better? Would we do any better? Literally, if our, if our life was literally being threatened, what typically happens, what happens is when we're operating in the flesh, self-preservation is almost always going to win over loyalty. And that's what took place here. So when you ask this question, well, could I do it? Could I stand up? Could I, could, I, could I meet that demand? The answer is likely no. Could I do it? No. But in the power of the Spirit, as we're going to progress in the story, it's a whole different question. But here, what I want us to see and understand is that we should have a healthy distrust of our ability in the flesh. And I know that that's the opposite of what we're told as a culture, but it's important for that to sink in. I can't do this in my own strength. And that's exactly what actually played out for Peter. Now, most of us most likely won't have some kind of a life and death crossroads where our, our literally make a decision and, and we're not allowed to be silent. You see, I was, I was doing a little research on this and, and different faiths actually have outs for this, if you will. Basically, in the Muslim faith, you're allowed to lie about your association to Muhammad, anything to protect you and take away the risk of harm. But those who follow Jesus Christ don't have that out. We're told that we will likely suffer for the name. But most likely in our present culture, that's not gonna take place as far as our life being on the line. But we make little compromises on a daily basis. Think what denial of Jesus Christ looks like for most of us. Denial of Jesus Christ more often than not isn't in the big things, it's in the little things. It's denial of his lordship when it comes down to the majority 
of self-directed decisions. Think about whether it's a choice to go do something you clearly know is outside of God's plan and design for you, whether it's a, what you land on as you're scrolling through the internet, whether it's a decision you make in the workplace on, with ethics, whether it's something that you are dealing with with language that you use. There's little mini denials on a daily basis, and that's why it's important for us to have a healthy distrust of self, and that's what we're getting to. Here's what we're told in the scripture in Luke 22, verse 61 adds to what's taking place. After this took place, we're told that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. We don't know exactly how that took place, if he had just finished the conversation with Annas, but I imagine that was a look that Peter would never forget when it finally sunk in that he had failed, that he had blown it. My question for us as we reflect on this section, this failure, my question for us is how do we respond when we blow it? Do we make excuses? Do we dig in our heels? Do we just ignore it and keep pressing on? How do we respond when we have blown it? If you think about it in the account of the those who failed Jesus, when, uh, when in this situation, we see that, that Peter shows genuine heartfelt remorse, unlike the story of Judas who ends up taking his own life. This moved Peter to do what? What are we told his responses in the text? It says that he broke down and he wept. I don't know, I like that response. We get a little parallel to, to King David as we talked about last week, that there's a healthy response when we've blown it. You can either dig in your heels in pride or come to the place, and this is a healthy crossroad, each one of us needs to come to this healthy conclusion. I can't do this. I can't do it in my own strength. We need to come to the conclusion, I, it, when I'm operating in the flesh, I'm gonna fail every single time. I'm always gonna fall short of God's standard for my life. But here's the, the healthy crossroads, and we really should have this on repeat, is that statement, I can't do this, I need you, Lord. It's not a one-time moment, but a repeat occurrence. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the idea. The old me has to be put to death. The realization that I can't fix me has to come to an end. Continue in the third scene. This one's found outside of the book of Mark in John chapter 21. This is a little bit of God's restoration, his reconciliation that takes place. It's initiated in chapter 21, verse 15. It said, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's interesting if you think about this account, well, basically to fill you in on where we're at, we're post-resurrection. 
And what's happened, which a lot of people don't talk about, is the disciples, even after they've had an encounter with Jesus two times, this is their third encounter, they've gone back to fishing. They've gone back to what they know, with what they're familiar with. And Jesus is coming and addressing them at this place. You can tell, you can imagine in this breakfast, there'd be quite a few awkward uh, interactions. When you've blown it, you know that you've blown it. And that's exactly where Peter is at. But Jesus, I love this. Jesus initiates reconciliation. That's the story of the gospel through and through. It's not because Peter fixes anything. It's because of Jesus's pursuit. That's why we're told clearly in scripture, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He initiates, he takes the step. And in this conversation, he starts asking a question that would be tough for Peter to know how to answer. Why would it be tough? Because he's asking him the opposite of what Peter had expressed at that point of fear. He asks him, he says, Peter, do you love me? Now, this is where the, the language is important to understand because at first read, you might not catch some of the nuances of what's taking place here. If you've done any study on the topic of love in scripture, you basically have three different types of love. I'll remind you of them. The first one is eros uh, type of love. That's a, a romantic type of love, uh, kind of where we get the word erotic. That's usually uh, a love that's say, or contained within the context of marriage. Second one is the word filio, which is where we get the name Philadelphia. It's a brotherly love. It's a, it's a committed love, but it's not without bounds. It actually has some, you know, you can blow it within the filio friendship type of love. And then you have the third type of love, agape love, which we know is a love that only God is capable of. It's not a love that has any boundaries. It's a, it's a perfect, uh, unquenchable love. So he asked them, it's important to understand, Jesus asked Peter if he agape loves him. In other words, do you have a complete and unconditional love for me? It's interesting because that's the question that Peter has asked, but Peter's response is, yes, Lord, I phileo love you. Second time, he asks him, do you agape love me? The second time, and here's the interesting thing, the second time Peter again tells him, yes, I phileo love you. Here's the thing that you might not catch at first is this is kind of a subtle way of Peter acknowledging his weakness. Prior to this, if he was asked, if he agape loves Jesus, he would have said, yes, I agape you. I would die for you. There's no extent that I wouldn't go to because of my love for this, for you. But on the other side of these circumstances, there's a little bit more of a realism. There's a little bit more realistic. There's a, a death of self-confidence that's taken place. And there's a realization that, of, of his weakness, of his shortcomings. The third time, and you see, you don't have to wonder why he's asking this question three times when he had betrayed Jesus how many times Three times, the third time, he asks him a little bit differently. He says, well, do you phileo me? And this time, it wants to hurt to have him ask that question, but he still answers, yes, Lord, I do. 
And here's where the reconciliation is unbelievable because Jesus in each of these questions gives the opportunity for a fresh start. He says, on the other side of this, if you do love me, then demonstrate that with your actions. Feed my sheep. In other words, the best outward display isn't just a a verbal, yes, I love you. The outward demonstration is actually to care about and do the things that Jesus cares about, to prioritize the things that he prioritizes. And so he enlists him back into making a difference in people's lives. Here's the awesome thing. He calls them to that and he brings to death the idea of self-sufficiency, of self-confidence and says, hey, I'm calling you, I'm re-enlisting you with a purpose and it can't be done on your own. It has to be done in my strength. Gotta wonder if this must, might, may have taken uh, root in Peter's life. What would have been the outcome of this? I stumbled on a, a, a verse later on found in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, book written by Peter. He later pens this concept. Listen to what he says. He says, clothe yourself, all of you, talking to his audience, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, Peter wasn't just speaking platitudes there. Peter had lived that. He realizes that God opposes the proud, the self-sufficient, the self-confident, but he gives grace to the humble. The person that comes before him and says, Lord, I need you. I can't do this on my own. That's where God's mercy and his grace starts washing over us and gives us a new purpose, a new calling, a new clarity on our life. For those that have fallen, man, I'll tell you what, there's something about when we're actually brought to tears, coming to the conclusion, I can't fix me. I'm desperate for you. I want to end with this little scene four. Kind of a cool picture of the new version 2.0 of Peter. Basically, after experiencing God's grace in his life, his mercy, his clear calling, he's now empowered to actually have a boldness that he never had before this. Acts chapter 4, verse 5 through 12 is where our final scene takes place. It says, On the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, now listen to these words, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
I love that account. Do you see the transformation? Who's he, who's he in court before now? Who's he standing before and having to give an account? The same characters, the same people that had the potential to take his life. It's Caiaphas, it's Annas, it's the whole, it's the whole crew that he had cowered in fear of prior to this. But after an encounter with the risen, resurrected Jesus, after the forgiveness and grace that was extended to him, he was getting a second shot. He was getting another opportunity. Who would he put his confidence in now? And here's the phrase I tried to point it out to you in the critical uh, phrase to catch there. It says this, filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, we have two choices as followers of Jesus Christ. We can either continue operating in the flesh, trying things in our own strength, trying to have victory, trying to dig in a little bit deeper, try a little harder. Man, I can do this. That was version one of Peter. The self-sufficiency, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-confident Peter. But now the transformation takes place. Now it's the spirit empowered version of Peter. All of a sudden, now he's bold. And I love, he's not, he's not holding back any punches. The one you crucified is now the cornerstone. Now is the one that by, by which only by his name, anyone can be saved. This is the new improved version of Peter. And here's the thing. You might ask, you might be like, well, Pastor Scott, how does this relate to, to mental health? You said that these were gonna be lessons on mental health. Well, here's the thing, is I think way too often our mental health approaches are trying to build a strategy around you fixing you, the Stuart Smalley's of the world. You're good enough, you're strong enough, and doggone it, people like you. Well, guess what? That's the opposite of what scripture teaches. There should be a, a hesitation anytime it's talking about self. We should be like, well, wait a second. I can't trust my heart, my mind, my own strength. Man, I am not to be trusted. But what I can trust and have confidence for any kind of victory in any arena in my life is the power of Jesus Christ, which should bring us to a constant place, a constant place of, Lord, I can't do this. I need you. That should literally just be on repeat in our day. Lord, I'm desperate for you today. I can't do this. I need you. Or we can spend our lives stumbling through, failing over and over again in the flesh. It's really a choice that we make as a follower of Jesus Christ, what we walk in the spirit or the flesh, much like Peter learned the important lesson that it's not gonna be in my own strength. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much just for this chance to look at another character in scripture and learn and start to see some reoccurring principles. Saw this with David last week in the comparison that when we come at a place of brokenness, a place of dependence, that's when you can work. God, my, my heart and prayer would be that that would be the position of each of our hearts not in a self-confidence and a, a pride or an arrogance, but in a place of uh, just fully needing you. God, we acknowledge that together, even in this closing prayer, even as we look at this story, God, we need you desperately. Pray that in Jesus Christ's name, amen.